Okay, good morning. This is Black Girl from Eugene, and I am Aisha Elliott. So we have this audio recording going because we attempted to pull this off last week and got disrupted by um, bad Wi-Fi. That's always the that's like the sneaker, right? <laughs> the bad Wi-Fi. So welcome to welcome to uh, my podcast. Thank you for listening each and every week. I want to thank my Patreon folks for supporting me each and every uh, month. It keeps this podcast going. So with no further ado, I'd like to introduce my guest, Sean, and we are going to be talking about toxic masculinity in the black community specifically um, and what you have done uh, to, to bring us solutions and support. So Sean, please introduce yourself. Thank you for being here. Hi, how are you doing? My name is Sean Goddard. Yeah, I um, think the conclusion that you know, there's a lot of symptomatic uh, issues that are facing the black community. A lot of it uh, levels on uh, single moms raising our black boys um, and then them growing into men without that father figure. Um, I talk about how I have traversed the United States most of my life um, after the age of 18, leaving Brooklyn, New York, and for the first time leaving and seeing the rest of the United States. And it was stunning to, you know, get on a Greyhound bus and say, oh, well, I'm going to go see what's out there. You know, $99, you can go around. (laughs) I was like, hey, I'm going to get on this bus and I'm going to see what's out there. So I left New York and, you know, I got to Salt Lake and I got to Chicago. I got to all these different places. And every time I would get off the bus, people would ask me for drugs or some coke or weed and they would just solicit things to me and i was just i was dumbfounded wow by the time i got to florida i had just came to this realization that in america we were just a drug i'm just a drug i'm just a drug dealer that's all you can get for me i have something to sell you and it was shocking it was dumbfounding i later returned to the west coast santa cruz california and um That's where I met my ex-wife, had my first child. And I realized something. I was like, I'm living in a predominantly white community and I have for most of my adult life. Right. Um, Three biracial children. I've lived in Florida. I've now lived in Oregon. I've lived in Lane County for 16 years. And I always say to myself, the reason I've been able to excel from a place of poverty is how I've carried myself. Mm-hmm. I try to carry myself as a gentleman. And I think about how I've succeeded, especially here in Lane County. You know, I've gone within the last six years, I've came to this county or Eugene, the city of Eugene. Six years ago, I was in the mission and now I'm looking at ownership of my own storefront. During that time, I've looked at what solutions have come to pass in this county. And the first thing I noticed was at Lane Community College, there was a women's and transitions program. Mm-hmm. And it's been for 30 years. And in that program, I've seen and met and had testimonies from individuals that were able to alleviate the traumas of domestic violence, um, re-entering society after incarceration, uh, dealing with drug addiction and other afflictions. And what I noticed was even though there was this program that were lifting these women up, there wasn't a program that was addressing the main cause to some of this, most of these problems. 
and that was men. Mm -hmm. There has not been a men in transitions program, though there needs to be one. So that's where my efforts began, at least being here. And over the course of the last six years, I was able to meet a bunch of gentlemen. And the words that I heard from them were shocking. A lot of them were honored to meet me just because of the presence that I've had with my children. Mm -hmm. That they've seen um, from the time that they were infants to the time that I saw them last week or the month before. And though most of this time I was impoverished and it was a struggle to provide for them. Right. I was pregnant, I showed up. So those are the things that I realized were leaving a pit and a gaping hole in most of the men's lives that I come in contact with. And it was something that I rationalized that is actually generational. I was watching these and listening to these young men tell me stories of growing up in these homes. And then when they became adults, all they wanted to do was buy a car for their mom, or buy a house for their mom, do all these things. And the disconnect that that was causing generationally left them so incapable of dealing with what was in front of them in the moment. I struggle with it daily. Mm -hmm. um, I have to remember the traumas of growing up and, you know, coming home and telling my mom, hey, somebody called me gay because I got stung by a bee. And I was like, I'm going home. And they were like, that's gay. And my mom, and I asked my mom, she goes, go look in the dictionary. And I remember looking in the dictionary and it's like, joyous and gay. And, you know, I was like, I love being happy. I love running around. And I remember fighting as a grown, as a boy. You know what? I'm going to fight for my manhood. I know what I am. I know how. And to realize that during that time, there was no trans-identifying community. There was not a gay community um, as it related. There was a homosexual community and a lesbian community I grew up around. But these things were not of the 60s and the 70s. And so even now, coming into the uh, men's in transition you know, talking to trans men and having trans friends and communicating with them about masculine toxicity as coming into this community may be new, there are also pitfalls. Mm -hmm. So I see the need for a men in transitions program for a bunch of different reasons. One, just to decrease or at least open a space mm -hmm. that we can start to discuss. Um, I remember you mentioning what direction do I have a plan? Is there a curriculum? We don't have the statistical data yet. We don't. We haven't had a space yet for men to communicate about the most vulnerable issues, mm -hmm. but also some of the most staunch issues that keep us as black men moving forward. And a lot of that levies on the women. I was just, I literally was just gonna say, um, first of all, thank you for, for bringing this forward because I think the label of toxic masculinity has a lot of emotion attached to it. And when we look at the, the factual relational, um, uh, like evidence that the way that men have been, it's kind of like white privilege to me, the way the men have been told that there is a certain way to behave and it's just this riddle in falsehood, right? And and in limitation and in stagnation and in oppression, right? And so the thing is, is that a lot of times people look at, you know, like what you're saying, looking at domestic violence and we look like what what's the statistics of, of men um, being the abusers and women being the um, survivors. 
the truth of it is, is like that that is the cause of something much bigger right and if men um as boys are not taught systemically that talk that masculinity does not have to do with the oppression of other people it would actually be something that little boys could could um, could grasp really very, they already grasp it. We are undoing something by putting them into that space. So I also, when I'm listening to you talk about this, I'm also thinking about like, not only are we, um, what we don't think of is like white supremacy being oppressive in itself to white folks as well, because they have privilege and I'm air quoting privilege because the ignorance of privilege is, is daunting and requires a, a really, really, really astounding amount of cognitive dissonance to, a, to be able to not connect to somebody else's plight, right? That's pathological. So when it, I mean, by definition, right? Unable to empathize by, you know, so basically like the idea of having that same space in, in toxic masculinity, it's oppressive to men, there's men and people who are identify as men or identify mask in the masculine um, binary that there's only one thing that you can do. There's only one way that you can be, and uh, other than that, you are devalued and de and you, you know you are uh, not a man or you're not all of these things. And it comes through cultural uh, lenses in so many different ways, right? Um, and we could go back and go forth about you know, tribal necessity back in the day and blah, blah, blah. But when you go like back further into our ancestry, women were warriors, right? Women got, so it's not somewhere we got lost. Somewhere we, we disconnected from, from, the, from the, the, um, the primary goal of, like I said, of relational relationships that, that bring the community forward, not having to bring co the control of the community and that not being the goal, but to bring the entire community forward. So anyway, I, and I'm a single mother, like I was a single mother most of the time that I raised my three kids and now I'm raising my three grandchildren and, um, and my kids, you know, had the relationship they had with their dad is one that I stopped facilitating like halfway through because before it was kind of like it's your dad's birthday it's this it's that it's, it's not him coming through it was me like hey go engage with your dad dad's standing over there yeah, right have, well i have a i have an analogy to that and it happened um well my experience that's one thing i must mention um the things that i talk about are but one story right my lived experience. There are a million other stories that just have not surfaced yet for men that have not had the space to speak about them. Mm. First and foremost is how do you identify with an abusive relationship so you do not become the victim of the domestic violent laws as they stand? Mm -hmm. And that is love is easy. You shouldn't have to fight it. Right. It's not a force. Next, just show up. I remember when, as you say, things get strained between adults. Mm -hmm. And I remember uh, having to traverse whatever, get wherever for that one Saturday in the park, every other Saturday, mm -hmm. but I didn't miss one. <laughs> there it is. There it is. I never missed one. And then 
those turned into like, you know, come pick them at the house. You know, things change. Yeah. You know, and I remember the lesson and how valuable it was um, to get outside of myself, mm-hmm. to get outside of what we call the binary. Right. Of, um, I could be the fun dad or I could be the weekend father. I remember having to explain to myself in the mirror, I am a parent mm-hmm. and I can be a parent in or outside of the home. It's going to be a lot more difficult outside of the home. <laughs> but those are the barriers, I believe, that are created inside of poverty. Um, most of the time, most of us are living and cohabitating with our partner in such a beautiful way. That's right. That the dynamics of poverty rip us apart. Mm-hmm. And because we don't have that cultural set, the uh, uh, core to go to, because we don't have that community to bounce off of. In predominantly white spaces, right. Sometimes you may find that in um, cultural events. But when it comes to the heart and fragility of what we deal with on a psychological level, the trust and the faith that is needed to go to elders, a community of elders, and ask them to lead and direct you, those things have been lost. Mm -hmm. And the disconnect is when you don't have uh, equity and equality in that leadership, a lot of times society has defaulted and will default on our women. Mm-hmm. When men tear things down and it's needed to be mended, usually our hands are just too brittle. You know, and, and too I, fragile for the times. I think about that really, really, um, I think about that a lot as a woman who raised, have raised men in my family, right? It's, it's a, uh, for black men particularly, it's a delicate balance of, of being able to be, you know, um, the, the demasculation that happens, mm. right, is, is something that is not only generational and in, like in our bodies of, of a deep, deep shame from the days mm-hmm. of enslavement, right? Yes. It's some, it's some spiritual healing. And at the same time, we're having this, we're, it's a crisis. It's, I mean, honestly, it's a crisis. It's a spiritual crisis. And I, people talk about this all the time with like black women and, and black men and, and having conversations outside of the community about the relationships within the community doesn't work. The conversation has to be within the community, right? But what I, and I'd love for you to speak on this because what I find when we have spaces like where we live in predominantly white spaces, I find having a conversation with black men um, difficult to have without first addressing personal, uh, what is the, what I'm looking for? Like personal relationship to Shame. Personal well, think, relationship I think, I think to guilt. Word, I, think, I think a good word is accountability. Well, you know, I don't know. Tell me this. Do black men, and, and, I, and I know you can't speak for everyone because I don't speak for every black woman, but, you know, in your, in your idea, like in your space, can, do black men associate, are, are, we, are y'all doing the deep conversations about that intergenerational pain 
that's coming through with the demasculation of black men as a part of what does toxic masculinity, masculinity we're holding so tight to. It's a def definition of, of trying to come through tough, valuable, valid. It's almost like an absolute and opposite reaction to being demasculated the whole t entire time of enslavement and then after, right? The black household. Um, we couldn't even get a government assistance you know, back, you know, in the 60s and 70s, if a black man was in the home. So a lot of families had to voluntarily separate so their children could get assistance, right? Um, from, you know, food, they couldn't get jobs, blah, blah, blah. It was, a, it's a, systemically, uh, that happened quite a bit. The man had to be out the house. So there was families together in order to, to move forward. They had to separate, you know, all kinds of, all kinds of legal reasons why. So I'm wondering, like, as, as a, a group, as a group, do you, do you know, is there conversations around what, it, what is that feeling from that deep inter, intergenerational complex, complex situation? How are y'all grabbing that to work on that? Well, we start, well, my attempts, let me first and foremost um, acknowledge what you said about speaking for a group or right uh, we are not every black man we are not every black woman <laughs> so, but um in this community um the dynamic has a formula mm -hmm. though we don't live in a vacuum as a community or a culture of people of color we do live on a petri dish being in a predominantly um exclusionary state of oregon yeah so when we do find the people of color here that want to push the work forward, those are our pioneers. Those are our leaders. So what we can do, though we are few, we can gather and we can correlate what this generational trauma has meant to us and how do we move forward. But we have to be real. Um, I'm in the, the midst of getting five generations of the last black uh, BSU presidency and vice presidency together nice so what this will do is this will take a very diverse dynamic of african-american men that have either acquired degrees traversed through eugene lane county come from a different array of states and communities um but they all speak to one thing having to maneuver through leadership roles as a man of color while having to know that there is demasculation in prisons mm -hmm. systems, which a lot and most of our black brothers have to come out of before they try to attain higher education. Mm -hmm. Understanding that that exists in um, group homes, that that exists in... Uh, job cores, that that exists in any upward type of educational technical mobility for African-American males or any type of institution mm -hmm. where we are predominantly gathered has not been for the benefit and well-being of men of color. No, it's designed not, not to be. <laughs> so yeah. um, to reduce that, that we have to be more inclusive in our own rights. Mm -hmm. I don't and won't have a conversation with someone if I don't level the playing field. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we have to level the playing field so that we all have a voice. 
mm-hmm. so that the guy that's working on music and the guy that's working on engineering and the brother out there, you know, starting his own company, have a space to come together and talk about what it's like to traverse in their own right. Mm-hmm. And in doing that, we get informed and we get information and we talk about things that are a lot more vulnerable. And we talk about things without the guise of racism. And that's where those more intimate conversations happen. Mm-hmm. That where we talk about and can have conversations about turning 18 and becoming not quite a man, but realizing you're entering the threshold of becoming 21, where no longer do you have that free liberty and availability to engage with women that are minors. Mm-hmm. That is important. That cuts down and reduces what's known as rape culture all throughout society. Mm-hmm. Know that in our culture, in our society, we are deemed to be sex deviants and drug dealers. Why not have a foot up mm-hmm. in an area where you are already considered to be lower? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The types of conversations that may come in swagger and slang and may be very derogatory because they need a place. Those are cries for help. Mm-hmm. That's because in our culture, that wouldn't be allowed. Right, right. So it's happening. It's only happening because you internalize the racist environment and culture upon which you have been placed. Mm-hmm. So you are just trying. You're poking at straws. But when you're giving a base, a basket of essentials that you know have benefited Generation before you, mm-hmm. generation before that, and they're there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You ain't got to read it in a book. You can walk next to their brother and talk to him, mm-hmm. see him. It's when you go into a space, it's, it's like this. You know the healing power when you have a sister circle. Right. You ain't got to like everybody there on every type of level, but the healing is contagious. And it's the community growing at one time. It's like some, it's like, um, we as a culture become a living organism in that point. Mm-hmm. Just like the brain, when one cortex grows musically, mathematically, scientifically, the whole brain is growing at one time. Mm-hmm. So be in the room of growth of your community, your culture, and your people and your elders is osmosis. Mm-hmm. We are that people. That's why when you see somebody from Africa, you can smell Africa. You mm-hmm. can feel Africa and taste Africa like it was yesterday just by their sight. Mm-hmm. And if that's that strong across the ocean, it's going to be 10 times more powerful when you're in the presence of one another. But I mean, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's, a, there's an issue. There's an issue. And I talk about it a lot about the predominant living black living in a predominantly white space that gives um, unique complications to the black community that that tries to grow and and be be uh to see each other in that real truth because there's a there's several other layers of trauma that we have to break through because we're living in a predominantly white space right there's one thing like you know you talk to black folks from the south of course we're not our culture is not monolith you're gonna get different cultural pieces no matter where the black folks are right but wherever yes. there are black folks, 
together and, and in community, there is a consciousness, like what you're talking about, there's a consciousness that is, that is uh, known and is, is um, without words, right? So that part, missing that part, when you are in a predominantly white space, um, is, is detrimental to like actual full growth of, the, of um, positive identity. This is like something that I do with a program that I run called Nurturing Black. It's extremely important that while we have young men who are small, young guys, you know, and they are trying to create a positive self-identity and they are black, they are living, they have lived experience as black young boys. I think it's crucial that um, community styled like lessons are taught and because like I said that that past trauma for masculinity period is an oppressive it's an oppressive uh dialogue it's an oppressive dialect it's like a way of like you have to be the rooster in the room right and that part doesn't work in the way that the society is moving forward and black women aren't there anymore right (laughs) like we gotta get well, that's the thing, you know, you're living in the uh, European society of dominance. Mm-hmm. So um, conquer to prevail doesn't really work in our culture. Do- it does not. So, it makes us sick. It's not how we work. It's not how so, we work. But, yeah. So what you're looking at is, you know, um, collective and cooperative growth. Yeah. And. And you brought up something, or a lot of people have brought up something that when you look at predominantly white cultures uh, of Lane County, we have a lot of immersion um, education. Mm. And, you know, you have Asian immersion and you'll have Spanish immersion. And if I were to say black immersion, they'd say you can't be a nationalist. Well, mm-hmm. let me explain something to you. We're not from here. Right. So we do need to have a certain immersion. Though that does not usually coincide with what's already the structure of any educational system, especially for j What comes to practice is African teachers associations. So we have enough developers, we have enough educators, we have enough psychologists, we have enough principals, we have enough presidents of facilities now. We have reached what's known as critical mass. So we can now have an African teachers association that basically sets a curriculum that basically sets children learning the same things they learned about European culture, except they learned about the African diaspora. Yeah, they, you know, they're talking about black history and I'm air quoting black history um, <laughs> and, you know, trying to bring in what there's what, the way that they're trying to bring it in, because you can't just have black. Right. You have to have ethnic studies. And so it's not it can't just be black studies and we're going to make it. It's got to be ethnic. Studies. And ethnic studies is a whole genre. I mean, you can get your whole damn degree, Ph.D., in ethnic studies. I, I'm not saying that's not a thing, but what to your point, when we focus on blackness and we focus on black consciousness, it can't be, it can't stand alone. Still, systemically, it cannot be recognized as a thing. And that is a, that is what we're talking about, even when it comes to self-identity. Like if you can't stand just in the idea that you're a black man and that matters to anything and anybody, we still have an issue, right? We we have a huge systemic global anti-blackness that we're up against. Um, and that's why I think I, that's why I, I 
I'm a privileged person. I had both my parents in my home. My parents are very, were very, very, uh, they were educated. They were black centered. They, you know, like I said, married until my mother passed away. We had very black shit going on <laughs> in my household, right? Like we, we didn't, both my parents are from St. Louis. We were not, we were not missing blackness, right? And we lived a very bicultural life living whiteness outside of my home, right? So um, I'm privileged in that way. I think about our culture, like what, we're, what you're speaking about, just like how much you're going back to like trying to tie an understanding of ancestral ties back to the motherland. And I'm saying there's people here who don't know who like Sonny Collins is or, you know, like Bud Powell in jazz. That's something that that came from the United States, from black folks here. That, that's an American art form that is black. Totally. I'm gonna, and most I'm of our black you. folks who are younger than us will be like, John Coltrane who? But white folks... Uh, go ahead. I was going to take it one deeper. The root of that, they don't know who their grandparents are. Well, yeah. They don't know who their great-grandparents are. They don't know who your, their great, great, great grandparents are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's the chasm that I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Because when you remove a very integral part called our oral tradition right. about who was, where you came from, and then you think it does not matter. Right. I traverse these United States not knowing who my father was until I was 23 years old. And found out that he died when I was 10 months old mm-hmm. while sitting in front of his 83-year-old mother. Wow. Listening for three days about his life. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, she cleansed me of a sorrow and a pain and a wickedness that would have me tear this world apart. Right. Right. But I'll tell you this now. I have learned I can build twice as much with these same hands that were willing to tear down. That's right. And the sorrow they've caused could feed the world. You're, you know what? This, this, this lives in our black men when they don't know who their father is, their right. grandfather is, their great-grandfather is, their grandmother is, where they came from, what state they came from, what country they came from, mm-hmm. where, if they were immigrants or not, if they, were, if they were slaves or not, if they were kings or not, if they were queens. And I knew it was, a, I knew the change is possible because I was homeschooling my son. And he was going through the fourth to the fifth. And it was what you were talking about, where they had, where you have to integrate uh, uh, indigenous American culture into the curriculum. Mm-hmm. And I had a choice. And because we're on the West Coast, there was a different choice about the indigenous people and the hierarchy thereof, mm-hmm. which I never heard of on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. I never heard that they were traitors and trappers and spoke with the Frenchmen. And th- that's not history there. Mm-hmm. That's not afforded to you as a black man. Mm -hmm. So I was able to give my son a choice and teach him that there were brown skinned native people that were not savages. Right. We're not running around with damn cowboys and chaps. Right. (laughs) Right. But then it was also the basis for him to be able to accept that who we were great people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But if you start with people ain't great and you ain't even find out about you yet 
when you get to high school, you accept it. Mm-hmm. That's right. And society is already pushing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we got to get in way before and let you know. You come from Africa. It's a great nation. Mm-hmm. Rich in resources. I just recently posted the, the cloths of Africa. Mm-hmm. Like each region has its own material. Mm-hmm. You know, sourced and speaking of things that go back to the birth of civilization. Yeah. Once you find that you have that richness, you will carry yourself differently. Mm-hmm. But if you don't know, and that's what I talk about men in transition, it's a transition of the self. So that you could have a that better part. community around you. That part. You don't have to go all the way back to Africa. I ain't got to go 400 years of slavery. I can go back to the 53 years that I've been alive. That's right. And go back to what it was like standing in a picket line with my mom. And then we got to go to Woolworths next week. Right. Right. That really happened. Yeah. But that was in a predominantly black community. Mm-hmm. With that type of support. So when I come to this community... I know it can come to fruition, but I know that we have to not only sacrifice, advocate, we have to educate and also inform. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. is also a responsibility. Mm-hmm. And if you would have told me in a million years I would have been in this position trying to inform other black men about what they should do to reduce maximum toxicity, I would not believe you. Right. No, totally. Yeah. You can't, you can't see the greatness until you step into the courage to accept it. You can't, it, you won't, it's bigger than what you can imagine. Um, and, and you doing this work will end up being bigger than, like I said, the impact of the work that you're choosing to do, the words that you're choosing to do will be bigger. The impact will be bigger than you can imagine. And this is the same thing, um, you know, that I think uh, I, I hope for, for black men is to be able to find the vulnerability to talk about what's, stops that courage and i and i as a black woman have i see it in lots of different ways and um you know and i and i so i have i have prayers and i have hope for black men who are struggling with this idea um because i see it as something very personally personal and very spiritual that needs to be um cleaned and addressed Mm -hmm. and looked at directly so that the work can be pure and so it's not coming from any level of like I told you I could. Like this, should, that's not where it should come from, right? Please. It's not. Yeah, it should come from a place of like I know this is where I belong, right? I know this is what I am. Not like I'm telling you because I know that's still talking about them. <laughs> that's still talking about them, right? That's not actually talking about you. But when it comes from you, you won't be holding any if anything that anyone else is doing because you have come to your wholeness, right? And so I, that's what I hope for. Um, and, and for all of us, not just black men, but for the black community, period. But I want you to drop, because we got to go pretty soon, but I want you to drop what you're doing in Springfield and the name and so people can know who are okay, local. Yeah. So yeah. We, we have a space in Springfield. It's a 107 South 14th Street. And I see it as an incubator. You know, like right now, I'm a glass blower. It's a nice space to just go and do my art. It's a big uh, open studio space. Um, so far, I've had at least three, four different businessmen just come in and reason and imagine what they can do. 
Um, there's a brother that's been in the BSU with me and president of BSU. We just go there and we talk about how our business is developed and, you know, strategize for what's possible in the future. And then just like, just sit there and give each other accolades and affirm that, you know, it was hard work mm -hmm. and like what we had to do. And so when you say does those conversations happen, they happen in the most meaningful ways, but this, they happen on a one-to-one -one basis right? because there's so few of us. They're happening. Like I said, we, we plan to get together this Saturday with like as many generations of the BSU presidents as possible mm -hmm. because I want them to inform. Mm -hmm. I want them to like be happy and joyous for me. Like I know I can't do this by myself. No. And that's the, that's the part that's, that's the part that's loved. Is there that's a point? Okay. They I'm have sorry. a space. Mm -hmm. They have a space now to everything that they've already been doing, everything that they've been told they can't do. Everything that they see that there were limits to. Mm -hmm. Imagine those limits are, aren't there any longer. So do you have a place for the listeners if you have, uh, like, uh, need donations or you need support in any way that they could, um, you have a... We're going to kick off our campaign in the 1st of May. Mm -hmm. So uh, hopefully you can invite me back. <laughs> so we want to do, like, we want to get, get everybody informed and we want to really... Like right now, we're reaching out to people in the community, the mayor of Springfield, yeah. the city planner. You know, we're reaching out to the art community, the city library. Um, we want this to be culturally relevant. We want to make a black space for black businesses. Mm -hmm. We want to make a black marketplace. We want this to be a place where, where black enterprise and imagination can grow. Right. But that's going to take land. That's mm -hmm. going to take equity. That's mm -hmm. going to take development. That's going to take time. Yeah. That's yeah. Resource take access. You know, I might not see it in my lifetime. Right. You know what I mean? And that's the part right here where it's going to take a lot of faith. Yeah. You know? It'll but. happen because it's time. It's right for that time. It's right. And so, um, yeah, absolutely. When it, You're always welcome on my podcast. Always welcome. And um, I will do my best to get to help in the ways that I that I can. Right? I'm... I've always was the girl who was like, okay, she talks too much. So what am I doing for a living? I'm talking a lot. So I mean, so that's kind of like what I do. So anyway, I'm, I'm always happy to spread the word. And um, thank you, Sean, for coming on my show. Is there any last things that you want to say before we go? Uh, the, the last thing is um, we have an artist coming from Africa. Mm -hmm. His name is Arthur Buckner. Um, he's a really prolific African artist in Ghana. He had a dream about me three months ago. Wow. And everything that he said actually happened over the last three months, the last three weeks, excuse me. So he's going to be in New York and he's agreed to come out here and do a mural on the side of the building. That's awesome. So we're really trying to pull that off. So stay tuned. You okay. Know, probably, like that's going to be our May conversation. All right. That sounds perfect. Well, thank you again uh, for every, thank you, Sean, for being here with me. And thank you everyone to listening for my podcast. And we, of course, I will be back at it again um, in, uh, I'm going to say a week. You guys know how I roll. Don't keep me to it. I'm doing the best I can. Anyway. All right. I love y'all. Everyone. Thank you so much for being here. And I will talk to you again soon. Peace.